and especially like when you're doing a show or something, the moments you take to do some sort of ritual, to do some sort of build up before you go on, that I took away as being like a real valuable thing, you know, to take that moment, whatever it is that it, you need to, to get in that headspace to, to do a stand up set, to, to play a gig, whatever it is, that can be really good and really beneficial. And if you can find something that works for you that you can reproduce, then hell yeah, keep doing it. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Today's guest is comedian, improviser, storyteller, actor, writer, musician, and jack-of-all-trades, Stephen Morgan. Last week, we heard from Tyler Foley, who commented that stand-up comedy may be the hardest artistic craft. And this is coming from a person who makes a living encouraging people to find their voice and be comfortable with public speaking. Stephen and I talk about this challenge, including the longevity and relevance of comedic material and the dilemma to balance improv and scripting in performance. We also talk about how the resilience of being a comedian can make for leadership in unexpected times. Spoiler alert, President Zelensky started as a comedian and actor. Let's meet Stephen. Steve, how are you today? This evening for you. Well, yeah, I'm good, Tom. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Let's talk about you. You started off in improv and comedy. Is that correct? Well, I mean, so music's kind of my my first thing, you know, in, in the sense of uh, until I, I, like a lot of people, until a certain point, I was like, yeah, music is going to be my life, my career, my everything. And then slowly over time found different things that uh, made that less and less feasible and harder. And uh, then here we are today. But uh, yeah, I, I started comedy uh, in a sort of proactive way as opposed to just the way I live uh, is when I moved to Australia and uh, basically had a culture shock of like, hey, I don't know anyone here. I don't, I'm not restricted by all of the things that I have and know from my life why not try something new and so i went into stand up from there how did you start so i've dabbled in stand up myself here in austin open mic never been paid a dollar but it's very competitive here and has a strong scene how did Uh, you begin yeah i mean open mic uh open mic is kind of the the place where you get to try out material where you get to bomb, you get to do well, you get to do anything, basically. It's just one of those things where I think you learn a lot about yourself and the way that people portray you when you do stand-up comedy, especially at the start, where it can be quite a, a shocking experience, really, um, to see how people react to you in those first five seconds and ha- hold nothing back. Yeah, for me, when I when I started, I didn't want anybody to see me, watch me. I just wanted purely strangers who didn't know me from Adam. And it's an adrenaline rush. So you pace around. At the time, I was smoking cigarettes and, <laughs> and, and freaking out and trying to work material. And then as soon as uh, you get up there... It's just if you if you don't bomb and you've got some something that's great and it captures the audience's attention, it's like lightning in a bottle. It feels like yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How often are you still doing comedy? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do. Um, well, I've got a. I've had a, like a bit of a break from stand up for a little while. Partly, mostly pandemic induced um, and life things getting in the way. But I'm kind of ramping that back up again now. But I've kept active with improv. I'm part of a collective uh, based in Amsterdam called Easy Laughs. Um, so we do a lot of performance teaching, uh, workshops, things like that. So it kind of, um, it's, it's a nice thing that we got going on because not only do you have this thing where you are constantly sort of like teaching and building a community 
of people who are starting to do these sorts of things themselves. But uh, then you also get, you know, the word of mouth then and the reputation of people who come along to actually see the things too. And it's a really nice sort of like little ecosystem, I guess, of just like these shows that happen every week and there's like three different shows and it's a, yeah, and a good group of people and uh, it's a lot of hard work, but uh, it really pays off and it's a lot of fun. With improv, tell me how you approach it differently or as opposed to stand up. Yeah, it's... um. It's funny actually because you know there's there's a there's a lot of overlap in many ways. I mean, I guess improv is very much something which is a form in, in its own right, but it's also something you can use as like a foundation to do other things, right? Because like you know when you are writing new material, essentially you want to find a way to make that natural. You want to find a way to make it sound like your voice. And like, I know that a lot of people write in different ways, but I'm a very sort of uh, visual and like a very sort of, well, <laughs> I improvise a lot. And I kind of took a while to realize that that was my best way of writing was to try and kind of like get this basic structure of what it is that I wanted to, uh, to, to have as like a bit. And then to start like just performing it, playing it out there and starting to realize as I was doing that, you know, which bits kind of really were of interest, which bits really had something to them and which bits just, you know, just I thought were perhaps more interesting or bigger or uh, than they actually were. So that kind of just became part of my writing process. And now I do try to have like a, a an outline of the things that I'm going to perform, but I don't like to have it to such a low level where it's like scripted. It's like, if I can't remember it, then it's probably just not worth remembering. Yeah. And then also you can play around with it and it doesn't, you can make it fluid. And for instance, with stand up, what people don't realize is how, how often and how long it takes to formulate a joke so that it flows so properly for a comedian on Netflix. I mean, right. that's, it takes hundreds, of, if not more times of, of popping in clubs. How often have you performed doing comedy before COVID, that is? Yeah, um, it's uh, hundreds. I don't know the exact number uh, of times. Um, I mean, I started in 2016 and I, especially for the first few years, you know, really went at it hard because I was kind of like, it was a new thing. It was a new toy. I really wanted to kind of uh, get better at it. You know, there's uh, sort of a slight like addiction, addictive element to it. So I really wanted to sort of find out where I was, which things were working, which things weren't and trying to get the, to handle different audiences as well. Cause there's a, a big difference, for example, with um, a, an expat and student audience that you get a lot in the Netherlands here, uh, especially performing in English. And say in Brisbane, where it's actually a lot of the older generation who are just in the pubs anyway, and, you know, there just happens to be comedy. And as you can imagine, that's a very different sort of audience who have very different expectations. And, you know, the best material is the stuff which you can make work for uh, both of those environments or have different material for the different crowds that really sort of can speak to those people and, and work under any sort of circumstances. And that's the challenge. Right. So tell me, what are you, what are the nuances? Cause I know they exist with humor in each country that you've lived in. Right. Um, well, yeah. So for example, what I said earlier about like how people perceive you, that's, that's like a big one as well. And also sort of changes how, comedy is in the different countries I've performed. So in the in Australia, you know, I'm seen as like I'm British. I'm very British, no matter what way that I look at it or try to behave or do something. I am that guy. I can't just kind of dismiss it, ignore it, or anything like this. There has to be some sort of mention of it. Otherwise it's kind of like you're denying the audience something. And uh, audiences in Australia, this you know, stand-up comedy is a big part of the culture there. I'd say um, uh, again, not as much as the US, but probably in the top five countries worldwide. Um, and so it's kind of 
it's it's a real thing, you know, like you don't have to explain it to anyone. You don't have to. No one's kind of like wondering whether or not they should try out comedy. They've probably seen something and decided whether they like it or not. There's com- a lot of comedy clubs. There's a lot of uh, that that's uh, coming from all different age groups and that sort of thing. Uh, but living in mainland Europe where, you know, people are speaking all sorts of different languages and the borders are not so far from each other. I mean, you know, obviously Dutch is the first language in the Netherlands. You got Belgium where it's, uh, you got Frisian, you got uh, French, you got all sorts of, uh, different international people living all over the place, Germany to the East. It's, you suddenly get this kind of like, um, it's a different thing, you know. There were, there were there's a whole sort of different culture of comedy in the background of uh, in the Netherlands, so to speak. Uh, for example, where cabaret is the big thing that uh, used to be was where things came from originally, and so as a result, you do tend to get um, you, when you do get Dutch audiences, but it's a very mixed sort of international audience because there's a lot of people from all over living here, and. The result, I think, is kind of people who are a bit more receptive to, I mean, I, I don't know how to say the something that's a bit more, say, progressive-minded, they will be uh, happier with, and toilet humor, they might be a little bit less happy with. It's, it's the kind of like the, the polite way of putting it, you know? What about in Australia? I mean, are they more apt to toilet humor or what would you yeah, say? Exactly. <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. And bear in mind, this is Brisbane as well, because like, you know, I guess if it's Brisbane ha- is is definitely kind of uh, like it's, it's it's one of the biggest cities. And as far as Queensland goes, it's, you know, it's, it's a cool place. But like, say, Melbourne is definitely the kind of place where you can get away with uh, a lot more, uh, I don't know, sort of... Um, I'm trying to think of a best way to put it, but the stuff, the sort of material that perhaps takes a bit more thinking or it might be a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit less brash. Right. So where in, in England did you grow up exactly? So I'm originally from Wales and I spent my, I lived there for my first, well, until I was an adult. Um, so in a town called Bridgend, which is not a particularly nice town, uh, one of those, I mean, like a lot of South Wales, uh, used to thrive uh, with coal mining, but uh, times have changed in the last 50 years. And so you've just got these kind of shells of valleys and villages and things like this that are left with the people who are trying to find other work uh, after that all finished. Uh, I lived in London for nine years. Um that was cool. Uh, very nice. I mean, you know, you don't have to big up London. Everyone knows it. Uh, but it was a place where you can easily kind of burn out because life is basically like a constant FOMO of just everything is happening every single night. The most exciting things are constantly ongoing. Uh, and you have to kind of accept at some point. It's like, yeah, you know what? I just need a night in front of the TV and that's fine. <laughs> right. What drew you to the Netherlands? Well, it was originally, I mean, the same reason that I moved to Australia was that it was with the work of my ex. Uh, and she was a scientist and it kind of, it was pretty niche. So it meant kind of living in different uh, places to work in the places that made most sense. So I moved to the Netherlands in 2018, at the start of 2018. Uh, the relationship uh, ended um, a little while after that. But I really like the Netherlands as a country. It's a really sort of, it's a really cool place to live. There's a lot of things here in terms of like quality of life, which uh, I was just like, you know what? I've, I have no real desire to go back to the UK but I do want to be back in Europe to be close to the people that, you know, I know and love. But at the same time, this feels like a great compromise. Yeah. And music has been a huge influence in your life, correct? Music has always been something which I'm dabbling in in some way or another or just listening to relentless amounts of music wherever I am with headphones and ignoring everything else that's going on around me. Right. For me, it helps me focus. I have ADHD, so in yeah. a way, it, it calms me. Do you have that as yeah. well? <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel as though a lot of creative people do. Um, yeah. It's more prevalent, I should say. 
And what type of music are you listening to? Or I came across the question where if you had five albums stranded on an island, what, what would you, what would you want to listen to? Like, what are your genres? Who are your favorite bands? No, I got it. It's a it's a it's a tough one. That particular one, mainly because one of the things I love doing is discovering new music. I really uh, like. There's always the temptation to go back to something which is like, oh yeah, I know that's good. I'll listen to that again. But honestly, I it was like a few years ago that I just realized there's nothing quite like finding something new and having that kind of love affair with that particular album, track, artist, whatever it is for that short period of time uh, before you completely overplay it and kill any meaning it could possibly have had at any point. It's, so it's exhilarating, isn't it? it I mean, it is. And, and it really- becomes an addiction. I'll listen. If I discover a song from a, a band that I, I don't know, I will play it over and over. And then do you try to decipher and discern what the lyrics mean and the meaning? Sometimes I'll get into that. Yeah. It's, it's if you really love it. And, and especially if it's like, say, you love this particular track and you discover that like this is from like album number eight of an artist or something. And you're like, oh, my God, I've got all this stuff now, which I can kind of at my own leisure, just just start to listen to, see what they were like, see what they were about. And it's just such a nice feeling, you know, because I, I, music really sort of like connects with me in a way that's sort of, I don't know, that it, it's, it gives my mind focus. It just makes everything feel like just really calming, you know, even if it's not calming music, it's just something where I'm kind of like I'm in it and it, I can just feel in the, the whatever the, the melodies, whatever style it is, if it's something that speaks to me, it, um, it's just it's, it's incomparable to anything else. And yeah, so when I, so when I sometimes get asked by people, it's like, okay, what about these, like, you know, say top songs, favorite artists, things like this. Often I'll sort of, I'll tell them someone who, you know, it's clear it's like an artist that I listen to a ton of times. It's clear someone that I really love, but it's also someone who I have like overplayed and have become so familiar with that when they were, even when they release new material, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that's kind of like a bit of this album, a bit of this bit and a bit of this bit. I don't have that same level of uh, connection with it. So for me, like uh, for example, uh, Alopecia by Y, that is uh, an incredible album. I, I still listen to that one regularly. It's like, uh, it's 10 years old now, but it's it's just a, an amazing uh album I, I can't recommend that enough there's um let's say uh worry by jeff rosenstock is another one which i go back to a lot but also definitely comes under the category of overplayed um uh, <laughs> hell yeah by the my she is always one which uh it's it, it was not it's kind of a bit of a cult one uh at the time but i often find myself just going back to it periodically because it just it's uh it's almost like well, the way I always like think of it is like it's a religious album that's not a religious album. It's just like there is so much joy and euphoria in this album. Yet there's, there's no religious context, but somehow it's almost like got this kind of this, this real, almost rabid, gospely kind of like feeling to it. Um, and maybe uh, Hearts of Oak by Ted Leo. That's another which I uh, absolutely adore. Ted Leo, I think, is an incredible performer. Um, and uh, oh God, what would I say? Maybe um, Curses by Future of the Left, um, a band who I've seen, God, must be like 15 times or so. Uh, and they're from Wales as well, where I'm originally from. So it's kind of like got a, a connection, I think, in the sense that I just feel like, you know, this is someone who's got a lot in common with me, like lyrically and music style. Yeah. So what about, how about comedians? Let's go with five, like, five of your favorite comedians or perhaps who've influenced you stylistically. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is another one that's really difficult as well, because it's another one where not so much that you kind of um, deconstruct it so much that you get sick of it, but more of the fact that I also find that like, especially with comedy times change and like material can, which could really sort of like, be really can really land and hit home at a particular point 
can just become dated so easily, particularly with stand-ups. So, for example, when I was like growing up, I like um, I would listen to uh, Eddie Izzard um, relentlessly, yep. and I absolutely like the the probably about three or four of his sta- stage shows. I kind of I could almost quote them verbatim because I listened to them so much. But the funny thing is, is kind of like you know he had this kind of niche where he would well you know he with with so so much of his material was absurd was uh but it was also very <laughs> thoughtful and also kind of like it taught me a lot about history like the guy knows about his history and loves to kind of incorporate that into what he does but now i kind of hear it and it's like there were so many comedians uh when he was at his most popular who kind of copied his style and started to do that sort of thing that he did um and i'm you're seeing it a bit with james acaster now and I just kind of, it's sort of, even though you know that he was the guy who did it originally, when you see it in so many different other people doing that similar thing, it's no longer novel or new or unique. And so it doesn't have that same kind of like, oh my God, the, the, just even the way he says that word is funny. Um, so it's <laughs> it's kind of a, yeah, it, it's, it's a hard one to say. Um, because like right now, for example, I think like for James A. Caster is an incredible stand-up um, as, as when, it, you know, uh, but I also love things uh, that are more, say, sketch-based or just more absurd. And uh, I do love things which are kind of completely off the wall. I mean, I'm a big uh, Tim and Eric fan, for example, who the way that they just sort of uh, cut up and just just have the most... Uh, I don't know. They, the way that they just see the world is just like unlike anyone else, I think. And even to this day, like Tim Heidecker's is um, 12 hour recreation of a Joe Rogan like podcast to just sort of really low key show how ridiculous the Joe Rogan podcast is. But to do that for 12 hours is a thing. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's, it's <laughs> things like that. Where, it's it's just mind blowing, but and like I, I mean, I'm not going to listen to those twelve hours, but I'm still looking at clips, and I'm still kind of like going, "Damn, this guy is just funny without even trying." Or how that's how that's that's how good he is, as he makes you feel that way. Yeah, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on somebody like Jim Jeffries? Jim Jeffries, I think that so it's not like a style which I would say is my favorite. But at the same time, I do recognize that he is like, I mean, he's, he's great. He's, he's done a lot of really good stuff. Um, and he's, and when he's really good, like, or when there's something that does speak to me, I can just, you know, I, I, I do think it's incredible. Like his uh, piece on gun control, for example, is one that went viral, like above and beyond what he does. And it's really cool. Um, and I guess I, I always kind of categorize someone like Jim Jeffries as someone who I can see him and kind of like see how in- amazing his craft is, but it's not something that I necessarily love myself. What about Ricky Gervais? Ricky Gervais is definitely someone who originally, like when he was doing The Office and Extras, like his, you know, the, the character of uh, David Brent kind of goes is a perfect example of one where it's like when it, when he first came out like that, it was just mind blowingly good. And the way that he had this hugely developed, this, this character that was so relatable and so cringy and so much depth that it was just amazing. Um, And I, and yeah, and I have to admit like early on, I thought that his, um, his whole sort of standups were, they were really good, especially as it wasn't really his background. But I do feel like over time that um, I I feel like he's let his ego go to his head and also became obsessed with kind of like uh, the atheist slant. And don't get me wrong, I'm not like a spiritual person. I don't have like strong uh, feelings in terms of religion. But I also recognize that a lot of the kind of like really hardcore atheism has a lot in common with a lot of hardcore religion uh, in the sense of like when it can go too far or become too much. I believe, I, I like the fact that people have spirituality and believe in certain things. And I don't care if it's like not like 100% provable, if it actually gives someone something meaningful, you know, let it be a placebo, let it be something that brings communities together. But I do feel like he's one of those ones who just became so obsessed with that, that it's just sometimes I just feel like he's, 
communicating like a teenage child in a way. And it's just a bit like, <laughs> what are you doing, man? You know, it's like, this is, I don't know. It's it's a shame because I feel like he he's a, clearly an intelligent and talented man, but he's just become obsessed with this one angle. So you were speaking about Curb. Yeah, so that's what I love about Curb. That's improv. Do you love Curb, that style? I mean, I've read that they literally just have an outline and then they are yeah. just they're playing jazz. It's completely, <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's, it's, I do think that like, so different, uh, I mean, I know that people have strong opinions on this too, because I mean, like improv can be used as a great foundation for writing as well, sketch writing for sort of any sort of comedy writing, because essentially this it's full of uh, games, exercises, ideas, which get, can get you into a particular mental space and can get you to play with something and can get you to recreate something in a natural way. And then you sort of pick up on the little things that are interesting and unique about it. Um, you know, there's a there's definitely like a I, there's a place for improv in that sense, no matter who you are. Uh, but then it kind of comes down to: do you want to have it as like a literal part of what you're making, or do you want to have it uh, as you know the foundation of the writing, but then you script it strongly? And there's a place for both, right? And it also depends on the people and the performers and things like that, because some people are stronger at that sort of thing than others. And there, to me, uh, I, I personally, um, I love it. I love it when you see improv in a particular scene, those moments where they almost talk over each other, the moments where you get the two people who are not really talking about the same thing at the same time. That is uh, something which, you know, um, the, the best uh, script writers can reproduce in combination with the best actors but there is a certain joy to having someone who is actually just really funny being able to create something that just seems so real and yeah i guess in in the case of curb the whole thing of it is based around how real it is and how cringeworthy those scenarios are yeah i'm, I'm a huge larry david fan so i don't yeah. know if you've ever have you ever watched any of his stand-up i haven't actually no he is he's considered, you know, a comics comic. Yeah. But imagine. he, yeah, he basically, it's an acquired taste, but ah, his, okay. but I mean, he, he bombed a, a lot and he, he met Jerry at uh, Catch a Rising Star and they just sort of formulated and that's how Seinfeld came about, but they couldn't be different. That's the when you can create a show about nothing like Seinfeld and in a lot of yeah. ways curb. It's amazing to me that you can just yeah. draw those, those concepts out of thin air. That they come from the people rather than like from a particular thing, you know, because it's, as you say, it's not about something. But at the same time, it's the the cast who are in it. It's what it becomes, whatever they are going through whatever scenarios they are in, they make it. Right. Are there any comedians in America that you're that resound with you or that you're drawn towards or you think that's funny? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I mentioned with Tim and Eric, uh, I also, I guess, um, uh, this, uh, what is his name? This guy who did all, uh, who's been doing these short documentaries uh, that used to be called All Gas, No Breaks. I can't remember what the name of it is now. Um, and essentially he's very similar to, he's, or a slight different style to Louis Theroux in the UK, who's very popular. Uh, and he seems to bring the weirdest uh, out of people. He's mostly an interviewer and a sort of documentary maker of sorts, but uh, you can tell that like comedy is what's lying behind it. Paul F. Tompkins, that's one. That's one who I like a lot. Um, although I always kind of, I'm half. I've always tried to work out: Do I really like Paul F. Tompkins because I think he's an incredibly funny person, or because whatever he's in, he always seems like he would be the most fun person to hang out with, and just like he has one of those absolutely contagious laughs and just seems to not be able to stop laughing at anything, <laughs> which in <laughs> itself is just such a, a gift. And you, your show, true to you. You want to talk uh, about yeah. that? That's, uh, yeah that's that's one of the improv shows i have with uh, a guy uh here in the netherlands called rochia back 
who actually uh, is now like uh, super popular on TikTok after, um, yeah, the guy, that he's found his niche there, I think, and is uh, is getting you know thousands of views on his videos every day. But it's a show which we do as a kind of a, a send up of um, of religious cults uh, and those who are taking advantage of people for money combined with sort of elements of self-help, combined with elements of um, uh, personal coaching and that sort of identity. It was just like a way to look at some of these different ways in which um, audiences can kind of be manipulated in, in, in whatever manner it is. And to put that into a a part improvised show where we have sort of, you know, obviously the set pieces which kind of come out of it that are the core of what the show is about, but it depends hugely on audience interaction and the things that come out of the audience. So it's very much sculpted on who is in the audience and what you get out of that. So it's a fun concept and it's one which we kind of, you know, we're, we're changing and, uh, haven't performed in a little while because of the pandemic, but uh, yeah, hope to get that running up, up and running again soon, and uh, see where it goes now. You and I are able to talk virtually right. and have, have yeah. this conversation, but I personally love being and prefer my interviews in person because you feel the energy, you yeah. and you can pick up and build rapport much more quickly than just looking at a screen. And so improv, it had to be difficult because you can't you can't pick up on that energy, uh, the yeah. interaction. Absolutely, because even just like that, very even just what happened right there, where slightly <laughs> talked over you, and there's like a fraction of a second where the, there's a delay in the, the you know what we're talking exactly. about, because it's enough to make it feel slightly unnatural. And when we're having a one-on-one conversation. When there's only two people, actually, it kind of works because it's so small. But as soon as you go to three people or more, it just becomes such a nightmare and such a mess, and you just can barely keep track of what's going on. I know. So you mentioned spirituality. Are you spiritual in any sense? I'm not into... I'm, I've been less and less. I was raised Presbyterian, but I've strayed away from that because yeah. for, formal religion, in my opinion, has caused a lot of issues. Well, throughout history, all yeah. <laughs> but tell me, has that? Do you have spirituality, or how that's affected yeah, your creativity? I, mean, I think it's it's a, it's always an interesting question for me because I was raised with like absolutely no like strong opinions on religion so there was no kind of this is the way it should be but there was also never any sort of like negative uh, connotations with religion and i will admit that you know i uh i was you know i i also i have shared sort of feelings about a lot of organized religion and i do recognize that it is something which uh has the power for causing a lot of uh, bad and manipulation and also has can really be abused because you're really kind of building people's trust and faith and people can and often vulnerable people can be very much taken advantage of and i would probably in my like 20s early 20s i'd have said i would have probably i'd have never i was never as far as atheist but i've been agnostic and kind of like we need to do something about organized religion and that's you know a very sort of negative aspect in that sense and it's funny how people like richard dawkins and and ricky gervais even and seeing them become such like um almost fanatic uh sort of anti-religious figureheads was a way of like, and you know, I, I read Dawkins' books, I followed Ricky Gervais for a while, and I was kind of like, reached a point where I was like, this is too much, you know? Like, it is one thing to, to have problems with like the structure of some large organized religion and the problems that can come with that, and maybe where it actually has impact on our lives and in politics and, and, and greatest things like that. But I think that it is great that people can actually uh, build communities around this thing, find other peoples around this thing. And 
even if some of the messages within the religions are outdated, it is that they're built on a core of trying to help people live a productive and good life, of trying to actually give people some sort of direction in general. So I, I you know, so I just feel like it's a different thing to every single individual. And I think that there's always going to be some level of spirituality in everyone, whether they admit to it or not, because we don't have these answers um, to these questions. So I'm like, yeah, at this point in my life now, I'm more kind of like very live and let live. And I, you know, and if some, if there's some way that I can do something which doesn't cause, you know, if someone else has got faith, it's like, and it, it's not causing me any problems. Why? Why should I? Why should that bother me? Why should that be a problem? You know, if it helps them, then good for them. Yeah, I, I think for me, growing up, the biggest problem was the amount of conviction because we don't know what's going to happen. I have no problem because, particularly culturally, what's been going on the past two, three years with COVID, we all yeah. need something to inspire us. And yeah. I'm I'm all for all forms of spirituality. So I I agree with you concerning Ricky Gervais. But so there's that side of the spectrum. Then there's the other side where you have somebody saying you're going to go to hell for doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't know that. He or she doesn't know that. So that's what I think is great about comedy is that you can you can push those boundaries and and push back on the absurdities either way right true yeah exactly yes yeah it's it's good and it, and actually i think that it's it kind of when done in a in a good well I mean, well done in a well done way <laughs> um <laughs> that it can really kind of get the message across of say how like absurd how damaging how uh you know how something is uh unlike anything else you know it can really speak to you in a way that just really sort of uh, summarizes it far better than the the cold hard facts will. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's uh, it's it's. Uh, I suppose it speaks a lot with comedy in general, right? You can really get through to someone. <laughs> There's also probably a bit of an overlap there with the religion because uh, <laughs> you can really <laughs> yeah. get through to someone and really get your belief system uh, to become almost like a faith you mentioned it earlier like the the uh life coaching and and all that stuff when you were talking about the show true to you yeah what was the angle that you all were taking up well the funny thing was about that so it, it kind of i mean it comes from like a lot of different places but um probably the one that was most influential was that uh my a few probably well, quite a few years ago, my oldest brother inexplicably and out of nowhere uh, became quite a fanatic of uh, Tony Robbins. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, uh, yeah. I know, <laughs> bear, bear in mind that in the UK and in like in Netherlands and Australia, Tony Robbins is not a household name. Every time I've told people this, their first sort of reaction is who? You know, it's not like he's that well known. However, obviously he is incredibly well known if you by the people who know him and culturally in the US too and he is basically like the the powerhouse of this these kind of self-help movements right he is the one who has uh has created an industry like no other and a cult no I wouldn't say cult but he's a movement you know that's just uh unstoppable even so many years after he started it and at one point, my oldest brother kind of was like, look, you've never actually experienced this. You're just sort of judging it based on your own prejudices, really. And I was like, well, okay, you're kind of right. Uh, but I do feel like they're coming from somewhere sensible. But you are, you know, I, I can't argue with that. And if this is something that means a lot to you, then, okay, I'll kind of back off. And he upped the stakes. He upped the ante that rather than just backing off, he was like, look, Tony Robbins is coming to the UK. This is when I was living there. And uh, he's doing a four-day course. And I will pay, and you can go on this four-day course of Tony Robbins. 
And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is <laughs> not a good idea. It's a waste of your money and I'm not going to spend four days. It's like, look, I know I said that I can tolerate this a little bit, but like this is the difference between tolerating and then this is too much, okay? But um, after a, a little while of thinking about it and, you know, it's my brother, you know, yeah, I love him. And, and I also was like, if I'm going to criticize him about this obsession, where am I coming from? What, what justification have I really got? So I was like, okay, you know what? Let's do it. My other brother as well, who had similar feelings about it all, was like, yeah, okay, if you're doing it, I'm doing it too. So me and this other non-believing brother were like, okay, we're, we're going to a Tony Robbins event uh, at this like gigantic conference center. In massive. The edge of the They're always massive. Just mind-blowingly big. And I went along to three of the four days in the end. <laughs> I, <laughs> I almost got to the end. but uh, And I came out of this whole experience with sort of like a – there were the things which I was like, they were exactly like I expected them to be. They were the things which were better than I thought they would be. And then there were the things that were worse than I thought they'd be. But I was definitely learned a lot more about it than I had no idea about before. I mean, for example, like fundamentally, this guy knows how to drive an, to like not let an audience mentally rest for like eight hours uh, for even like five minutes, it's impossible to be in that room and not have to be 100% engaged and with the interactive stuff that he's doing. It's kind of, it's, it is exhausting. And I guess maybe <laughs> that helps the ideas get pushed in. But at the same time, it's like, I could see around me, there was some people who were like, really just like, you know, and then they make you talk to like other people as well. And like these people were like, really like, look, I'm here. I'm like at this point in my life, I'm going to start my own business, but I'm just terrified and I'm sick of this, like, you know, this like life that I've got working on this and I can't keep doing it, but I'm not like a person who's naturally good at this sort of thing. And I don't, and I'm, I don't know what to do. And, and they would, there was a lot of advice pushed to them that was like, actually, really positive and you could see this kind of way of just like going you know break down everything that you've like gotten into a habit of or you think is good or not good from how you you live your life now and i was like you know what that that's actually pretty cool and that's kind of like a good thing what i didn't like <laughs> was the yeah. fact that it's kind of like it's just so based on money and finance and, and getting you to pay for everything and like sign up to other parts of it. And also like he had this dietitian stuff and nutrition stuff, which, oh my God, that is not based on science. And that is not a good idea to, I don't want, and why is he looking at nutrition when he's just like, what, where's his link here? You know, you're like, Hey, you can do the self-help stuff, but why are you now trying to tell me what I should and shouldn't eat this? You don't have that background. You have to enlighten me. I don't know about the diets. I mean, I've Whoa. watched clips and stuff of his. Yeah, like this is the aspect. It was like, what is he talking about concerning diet? Well, this is it's so his he's. I guess it's it was almost like a precursor to a lot of uh, the paleo trend. You know, it's very much kind of like going back to nuts and berries and taking like uh, and trying to find your nutrition from like very natural sources now the thing was is my older brother actually did live the T tony robbins diet for quite some time uh now the thing is is he lost so much weight during this time it became almost dangerous uh and and i'm sure that like in theory you can get enough nutrition from the way that this diet is supposed to be if you are eating probably like 20 hours of the day because it's so hard to get the calories that you need from the things that you're eating but my brother is also a little bit um absent-minded too so he was the sort of person who would like get so like wrapped up in something he'd forget to he'd skip a meal which is not so bad when your meals are like full of fat and full of you know protein and things like this but when you're subsiding on tiny little amounts of food, suddenly when you start, you miss a meal, you are going to lose more and more weight. And so, yeah, to me, it was just like one of these things that was like, this is irresponsible. This, this is someone who's not in a place where they should really be 
taking this lightly. And this is not something which you can just sort of uh, like do in a half-assed manner. And it could be dangerous. And, and that, that wasn't great. But I did walk over hot coals. So. Oh, you did? <laughs> I did, go? yeah. How did that uh, go? Yeah, it's fine. Uh, I, I think I, I've, I've actually been wondering, is it because, you know, when you actually do it, you sort of you got your shoes off and then you just walk and then it's like, oh, OK, that wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. And there's <laughs> thousands of us doing it. So there was a part of my brain that was like, it's just not actually that big a deal, is it? Like, <laughs> it maybe, was just... they, maybe they cooled down a lot. Yeah, that's true. It's the UK. It's not. It's probably like by that time they were warm coals. You know? Right, lukewarm coals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's your... quite nice on your feet. <laughs> yeah. Is your brother still doing that diet? Uh, no, no. He he stopped that, and you know he that that part of things he stopped first. I mean, I I know he's still. He still respects Tony Robbins, uh, and I know that he still uh, occasionally goes to different things that he's running. But I think it's more now that like he sees it like as a tool. If there's something big that he wants to change in his life and he's lacking motivation, he sees those sorts of sessions as ways to kind of like snap himself out of something. And actually, and that I actually think is like you know what, yeah, you know that that is where I can see the benefit out of this. It's just that you got to stop at that point and not go any further. What did your other brother think about Robbins? Did, uh, did he yeah, know? Yeah. No, nah, he had a. He was perhaps slightly more cynical than me. He was very okay. much like, ah, oh, yeah, it was just like I expected. It's a load of bullshit. Why would anyone? <laughs> do this? You know, look, I've done your thing. I've realized it's bullshit. Now you should stop. <laughs> he was very more well, hardline. You know, it's intense to be in a room like that. And oh, have yeah. these people all drinking the Kool-Aid, in my yes. personal opinion. It's yeah, really overwhelming. Spoil- yeah, you don't want to spoil it for anyone else as well, right? Because yeah. I'm feeling super cynical, but there's this guy next to me. He's paid, like, who knows how much money to be there. He's so into it. And now I've got to talk to him and tell him these personal <laughs> yeah. things in my life. I'm not going to talk, turn to him and go, look, dude, I know we're supposed to do this, but I don't know you and I'm not doing it. So, look, let's just pretend and smile and, like, wait until it goes back because he wants to do it. And I'm not – and I don't want to deprive right. him of that. Speaking of improv, did you have any fun with it? Did you, like <laughs> – Well, yeah, you- I mean – this is there were some like so for example one of the things which uh sticks in my memory is one of the 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 biggest uh sort of um well we we made jokes about it a lot afterwards was um that every so often and i'm talking like say every 15 minutes or so everyone would have to do a 10 second celebration and now what this is is that spontaneously the entire room has to physically and vocally celebrate as though like the most meaningful, amazing thing has happened uh, to you and that you're, yeah, that you're going to physically react to it in that way. So if you're a sports fan, it's just your favorite team's scoring, if it or winning, if you, yeah, whatever it is. And like there was, I know that that sounds like something which if someone tells you to do that, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Or I'll, I'll do kind of like, yay, hooray, <laughs> and that's it. But it like they like he drilled into us right at the beginning so much about like how important this is, how beneficial this is and how we're going to be doing it so much and like and doing and like repeating it and trying to get us to do it more and more that it became this thing where like I, I've never experienced anything quite like it because when you got the room full of people going absolutely ham, it was just mind blowing when they actually happened and a bit contagious. And I get why he does it, right? Because you're like suddenly full of endorphins, you know, you're shouting, you're screaming, you're physically awake. You're kind of like, you, you are just like adrenalized. In and that you're moment. feeling the energy from everybody else. Like we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it like and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, and it kind of and especially like when you're doing a show or something, the the moments you take to do some sort of ritual, to do some sort of build up before you go on, that sort of thing I can definitely that I took away as being like a real valuable thing, you know, to take that moment, whatever it is that it you need to to get in that headspace to, you know, to do a stand up set, to to play a gig, to to um whatever it is 
that can be really good and really beneficial. And if you can find something that works for you that you can reproduce, then hell yeah, keep doing it. Yeah. If I attended one of those things, it would be very hard for me to not sort of mess with people a little bit, particularly if it's if they're ramming it down my throat, I'd, I'd yeah. throw something shock and awe is what I like to say, you know, just, say, yeah. <laughs> just say something that's not what the rest of the group is. It depends. As you know, like we're talking about when you in a person's presence, you pick up what's meaningful. I mean, obviously Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen, yeah. if he were to show up at a Tim Robbins yeah. before he, he blew up, can you imagine yeah. what that would have been, been like? I mean, I think it would have been hysterical. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> he he would really have, caught the uh, the vibe, and oh my God, I can't even begin to think what he would do with it. <laughs> but that's kind of what I would be drawn to because it's there are things that he say that are inspirational, but then, then there's other things that I'm just like, that's intense. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that um, if I'd have, yeah, I mean, it can be dangerous and it can be something that can play into vulnerable people and take advantage of their, their blind faith in it or the fact that they're coming from like a, a difficult place. And I do think that, yes, it, it definitely is something that, I mean, that's part, part of the reason why it was an inspiration is because, you know, I could see suddenly the positives and negatives all sorts of different angles with it so it was a really interesting thing in that sense but at the same time yeah i mean um i i perhaps would have found it funnier if it went for the the circumstances that i was there you know i was there because of a love for my brother and i wanted yeah, to kind yeah. of like and understand it and take it as seriously as i could I will admit that me and my brother, when we were sitting there now and again, would do the whole kind of like lean in, whisper something, <laughs> yes. then just try not to burst out laughing. But we, we, we did manage mostly to, uh, to keep it together. What, uh, how has it been in the Netherlands with COVID? How are things going over there? Well, we were one of the last countries in Europe to start opening up uh, fully again. Um, even though during lockdown itself, sometimes we were more open than others. It's also crazy, right? It's it's like different kind. Suddenly, someone's like, "Okay, now everyone can come in," and then there was like a huge spike in numbers, and it's like, "Okay, that was a bad idea." Things have gotten close to normal now, you know. It's 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 a and I guess. <laughs> I know it sounds flippant, but like with everything that's happening in Ukraine right now, and I do know I was a lot just of about Ukraine to ask you about that. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's what, like the focus has changed. Has that affected the Netherlands? I mean, people people here it's affected me. I mean, I I, yeah, I yeah. can't keep my eyes off of it. It's a it's a yeah, I'm deeply, I know it's gravely concerned. Yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying. You know, it's it's um it's. Like, as, as I said, because I work my day job, I work in IT and I work with a lot of Ukrainians. And it's like, um, for example, we have like these daily meetings and uh, it's now it's kind of like, oh, where's, uh, where's, where's the guy who I work with? And it's like, oh, yeah, you can't attend today. The air raid warning went off. And I'm just like, holy shit. I mean, just, just the fact that he's still working to me is kind of like, oh my God, how are you like holding it together? He's in like a safe house somewhere in the West of Ukraine. And I'm just like, I cannot, on the one hand, I can relate to, to him a lot because we, we chat a lot. But on the other hand, I'm like, I have no idea how I would be if I was living your life right now. And I don't know how you're so calm. But at the same time, maybe that's his way of like just holding it together you know, because we've talked about it briefly and he's always very much like, yeah, I mean, I'm here, I'm working, can't really I, do I anything. Think, I think people are could be more resilient than they think. I mean, particularly if you're in a crisis mode, but it is disturbing to me that you have 1.5, 2 million people that have fled the country and under no acceptable premise other than for control and, it, and, and, and also energy. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, there is some of that, but you genuinely think like, what is the motivation here? Because it's, it may, yeah, they'll have some natural gas, like a lot of countries uh, do have those sorts of resources, but it's not to the extent of, you know, like there have been some international conflicts where you do start to question what's the true motivation here. But like in this particular instance, it just feels like the only way that anyone could like think that this is possibly a good idea, and I'm speaking from like a, a hypothetical Putin uh, perspective, is like that you want to restore the Russian Empire. Like, are you mad? Are you like, what is that based on? I mean, how many Russians are there kind of like going, oh, it's just so hard to know that Ukraine is there not under our control. Oh, you know, it's like, what what difference does it make? What what mentality do you have? Yeah, it's it's just such, the end game just does not make sense to me. And but Zelensky, a comedian, right? Okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, as well. look how look how resilient he's been. I mean, he well, yeah, he, he just, went from being just like this kind of you know nothing much of TV a TV star comedian. Yeah. Both, ironically, both in Ukraine and Russia. Right. Uh, and, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like he, he's, he started like a, an improv show uh, competition in Ukraine. He was a real sort of uh, pivotal character there as well. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think as well because he was like so unexpectedly bland for the first part of his kind of like leadership. And then this happened and suddenly it was like as if he woke up and became as charismatic as he had been in the past. And it's just like, oh, wow, this guy. No, no, no. Yeah, charismatic totally undersells it as well because what he is doing is kind of like so is, is single, well, not single-handedly, but he is like diluting that message of like Russian power on a daily basis in such a way that is so inspirational and so like, I, I can't even begin to like think what it's like to live a life where you know that there's people who want to kill you every day, like and your family and your, and family, your family are yeah. the top targets. That's what he said. The two, I'm the top target in Ukraine, and second, my family. Yeah, it's and just it, it's. I mean, so yeah, somebody who was a comedian and TV actor. And, you know, he was on a television show that was popular in Russia, too. Absolute respect to the guy. I mean, like, the fact that he has stayed and he is continuing to deliver these messages in the way that he is, I don't think anyone saw that coming. And, you know, I think it has completely changed the narrative of the entire conflict in a way that benefits Ukraine. And, yeah, just absolute kudos to doing that. Has it affected you uh, creatively? I mean, it's been a distraction for me in a sense because it's so disturbing to mm. watch. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. It's it's distracting in the sense, uh, like I alternate between the kind of doom scrolling of like the latest situations and what's happening with it and just kind of, um, and, and also having moments where I'm just like, I can't, you know, I, I got to, sort of take a break from this you know and it does it feels surreal as well like i saw a post on social media today that like um someone had uh, baked some cupcakes in like blue and yellow color all right icing and and i was kind of it's just one of those moments of like just i just saw this post and was like imagine I'm in this situation, like, you know, either on the front line or wherever it is displaced from wherever it is I live. What would I like the cupcake thing or would I be like, you know, yeah, thanks for the cupcakes. That's really helping. Great. You know, that's good for you. And I, I, I just, I cannot, that's the thing. It's just like, you get all of these different moments where like on a, like hour by hour basis where you're just sort of, trying to process the whole thing, you know? And, uh, and yeah, it's just really hard to make sense of it all. I'm hopeful that there will be, at some point, the Russian people will just be like, enough. I mean, it's just a complete, he's an authoritarian dictator. 
it's just a feign. Like you're right, you were elected. That's total bullshit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's, but it's also like kind of you know, it's so s- concerning when you hear that like most Russians are very much in support of it, and when you've got state media that are controlling things to quite the extent that they have, that it's not just like they kind of undecided or this uh you know it's a maybe or or whatever it is they're the people who've like sort of spent their entire lives and and i guess you know have built a their friends around them are also kind of uh people who've been through the same things are feeling the same way and and, and will buy into it all and if if you have to make that decision that you think that maybe this isn't uh the the, the great and liberating uh invasion that it's been uh, said to be in the russian propaganda you have to kind of not only go against the people around you the, the what it is uh, you know you've you've built as a belief system you have to question all of these things that you've kind of done to just be like mindlessly pro uh russian um uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, pro-Russian government for all of that time and whatever part of like your identity and your lifestyle that ha- that uh, that has made up something of. And I think it's, you know, it's something which can't be underestimated. The disturbing fact is of the matter is that this is the largest invasion since World War II. Precisely, and, yeah. Uh, it's just, what is going oh, to be the domino effect? Yeah. So... Thank God we have music <laughs> and, 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 and laughter and humor. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've watched some of your YouTube. I loved your YouTube on Workspace, the office space during COVID. I thought that was funny as shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are some of the things that my listeners would enjoy? What are you most proud of as far as on your YouTube or personifies yeah. you? And your sense of humor. I don't know. I mean, like I, I love doing. Uh, I always kind of like things. Think of like the funniest things being the things where it's like, um, you watch it and you kind of think, why would someone go to such an? Ex- this is so ridiculous. Why did someone make this? Why? Why did this even happen? So you know, I, I um, uh, I've done some like musical based videos that are about very inane things uh i've got i i had a there was i mean i I, you could say that like my most popular one was when i this um parish council video which i edited which went quite viral in the uk um after being sent the long version by a friend that's a whole story in itself but no i mean like i just love making little short stupid things and like there's there's some things in there people will find funny and some things in there people will just think is are just just stupid and i'm totally fine with either of those descriptions <laughs> right and then do you think you'll be getting on stage anytime soon yeah um there's uh, this end of this week next week I mean, in the Netherlands, uh, a lot, <laughs> especially uh, Utrecht. Now I live here, and Amsterdam is, yeah, mostly those two cities. Uh, okay, I'm fascinated and proud to tell you that I've actually had four or five hundred downloads from the Netherlands, oh, yeah? and even more so from the UK. Yeah. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You never know with podcast reach, do you? It's always really fascinating. Well, yeah, everybody, uh, English is, fortunately, for it's a universal, so I'm glad I could plug it in for you, so anybody that's listening can hopefully come see you in the near awesome. future. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I come on all Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, TikTok, God, there's so many now, uh, right. yeah, all of them with varying levels of uh, activity. <laughs> But you can find them all right there. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We went uh, really a, a little away from from uh, humor, and but yeah. uh, it's unavoidable, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's yeah, and I I I, I always think that kind of it's it's a lot more interesting too. You know, I uh, it's it's a lot. It's you just find it's nicer to find like the humanity, and then also find the comedy in just like everything, rather than just trying to be funny which often just feels like you're trying too hard. Oh, yeah.
<laughs> well, listen, thanks again and a great conversation. That's been really cool. Thanks, Tom. In next week's episode, we continue our discussions about the evolution of comedy in the U.S. and the art of live performances with stand-up comedian and podcast host Shane Rogers. Shane is the co-host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, and after three episodes with Tyler and Steven and Shane, hopefully you hear the common threads of how podcasting seems to be the very last frontier in creative autonomy. To that end, I really must thank the listeners and ask anyone tuning in for the first time to please like and follow my podcast on your preferred listening device. If you want to be part of a broader community, you can sign up for my newsletter and complete the survey in the show notes to help set the direction of future episodes. I am truly grateful for the over 50,000 downloads I have received already and appreciate every listener. Until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.